You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen in the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I've continued to mention, the Psalms of Ascent, these 15 Psalms, 120 through 134, are the pilgrim's playlist. These are the songs that the children of Israel would sing as they journey three times a year for the festivals in Jerusalem. And today these serve as songs for the Christian journey as well. As we journey to the city of God, the eternity that is awaiting us in Christ Jesus. We may live in a very different time. We may live in a very different place than the ancient Hebrew people. But we are still traveling through the same broken world that these original sojourners experienced. The landscape is very different, but despite all of our advancements in technology, in medicine, in healthcare, all the human advancements, it is still the same human experience that is filled with heartbreak and pain and the devastation of sin. And so where the psalmist leads us to begin today is in the depth, or in the original language, it just simply begins with this word, deep. That's strange. And that's a very strange way to begin the Psalms of Ascent. These are the songs for the climb to Mount Zion. Why are we descending? Why are we going deep? Well, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say that in the kingdom of God, you ascend by descending. The way up is down. In fact, this is what we see in the incarnation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. He came down to be raised again, and so it is with every single man or woman or child that follows him. Now, there's a scene from an old children's book called uh, The Princess and the Curdy, and Curdy, rather. It's part of the Princess and the Goblin series. And there's this young man who comes to a staircase at the king's castle. And despite being totally unfamiliar with the climb, he's able to navigate the complicated mountain. And the narrator pauses to acknowledge why he is able to take each step with so much certainty. And the author says this, But those who work well in the depths more easily understand the heights. For indeed, in their true nature, they are one and the same. Miners are in mountains. And Curdie, for knowing the way of the king's mines and being able to calculate his whereabouts in them, was able to find his way about the king's house. He knew the climb, 
because he knew the descent. And I think for a lot of people today, we struggle in the spiritual climb because we have been unwilling to face the deep. Unwilling to face the depths, the deep places of our humanity. We want the second half of the psalm, hope, abundant, plentiful redemption. We want joy. We want sing for joy, God's people. But we want it without the first half, the cry from the deep crying from the deep, but being raised to abundance and really experiencing the promise of hope that we see here in this psalm means that we have to first face the depths of ourselves. That's where the psalmist begins. That's where we're going to begin today. And so we're going to follow some of the motion of Psalm 130. And the three points, if you're taking notes, will be these. Drowning in sin, standing in forgiveness, and trembling in awe. Let's look first at drowning in sin. Look with me again in your Bibles, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, depths, almost always in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, represented the the chaotic abyss. It was this depiction of this watery grave far away from God and far away from life. It's where Jonah, if you remember the story of Jonah, it's where Jonah found himself as he was sinking right before his odd rescue in the fish. He says these words, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. The deep. Now, while sometimes we find ourselves in the depths because of unfortunate circumstances that are totally outside of our control, the psalmist's prayer for mercy and forgiveness indicates that what he's talking about is the grave that we dig for ourselves. And it's the depth of our sin. The picture is of a person who's been swept away by the flood of guilt and shame, which are the consequences of sin. They, like many of us, maybe perhaps tipped their toe in, you know, in the water thinking they had control over the situation, and the next thing they know, they are sinking with no one to rescue. Sin in the Bible is described as this downward spiral that is both voluntary, we choose it, and yet this powerful enslaving undertow that pulls us downward further than we'd ever choose to go for ourselves. It's voluntary, and yet it's this undertow that pulls us away from life and the peace that God intends for our lives. And you see, Psalm 130 illustrates a doctrine of grace that is called total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that you're the most horrible person imaginable. It doesn't mean that you have no reflections of God and that you should hate yourself and that you're not worthy of love. Total depravity means that the whole of our life has been impacted by the devastating effects of sin. Your total being, mind, heart, body, will, spirit, everything, all of it has been swept under the power of sin and it has rendered you incapable of simply overcoming by yourself. And so the psalmist reminds the believing community that our lives do not begin in a place of moral perfection, 
of moral neutrality where we make mistakes and then we fall down a rung or two. Whether we recognize it or not, our lives begin in the pit. In the pit. No matter how polished your life may look, it doesn't matter what family you were born into or what kind of wealth you were born into, your accolades, what you know, socioeconomic stratosphere you find yourself a part of. Apart from heaven's intervention, you are sinking. You're sinking. And it's a depth too deep for self-help. It's a depth too deep for self-esteem. It's a depth too deep for self-love. It's a depth too deep for self-righteousness. And when you're in the sinkhole of sin, nothing that you do for yourself is going to help. In fact, it's like sinking sand. The more that you struggle to get yourself out of it, the deeper that you fall. We try really hard. We try really hard to alleviate our sense of guilt. Probably That's probably one of the things that we do best as human beings. We numb it. We mask it. We silence it. We avoid it. We pretend it's not there. We try to therapy it away, but the psalmist shows us that guilt isn't something that you're trying to alleviate so that you can go back to living a carefree life. Guilt is the cry of the soul that is pushing you to find healing and rescue in the only one that can offer it through faith and repentance. Guilt is not something to bury or to cover up or to ignore. Guilt is something to leverage to launch you into the arms of Jesus. And so the psalmist says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. He settles what every single one of us needs to settle this morning that there is no depth too deep for God. And while our sins run deep, his mercy runs deeper with plentiful redemption, with abundant mercy and grace. Listen to what, how one author describes it. God is deeper than the deepest depth of man. He is holier than our deepest sin is deep. There is no depth so deep to us as when God reveals his holiness in dealing with our sin. Think more of the depth of God than the depth of your cry. Sinking in sin. Drowning in sin. And yet there's hope in this passage, which leads us to our second point, standing in forgiveness. Standing in forgiveness. Now, I don't know if it's a common phrase anymore, but when I was a child in school, there was this ominous, mysterious thing that I didn't really understand. No one really understood, but it was the scariest thing ever. And it was called the permanent record. <laughs> you remember the permanent record? Still to this day, I'm not sure where the permanent record is held or even if it exists. But a phrase no child wanted to hear when I was growing up was, this is going in your permanent record. It was the worst of punishments. I'd rather get the spank from the vice principal. I'd rather get my recess taken away. I'd rather you call my parents, but not the permanent record. And as far as I could tell, this was a lengthy record of your entire academic career going all the way back to your earliest elementary days, every good grade, every bad grade, every time you acted up, every disrespectful word, every time you went to the office, every time you were tardy, 
every time you showed up to school for getting your lunch money, it was all being logged in your permanent record that followed you around for the rest of your life. It determined what school you got into, who you married, what children you had, what job you had, and even if you got into heaven. And I can imagine the day sitting down preparing to graduate and the dean, you know, opening up my long scroll and just shaking his head and saying, it's not looking good, Simon. It's not looking good. The psalmist begins to consider what life would be like if this is how God treated us. If this is how God dealt with our history, our permanent record. Look at me again in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you are keeping track, O Lord, who could stand? Put another way, if God chose to deal with our sin the way that our sin deserves and hold it against us, then we would not stand a chance. I don't care how good you are, how charitable you are, you would never be able to tip the scales in your favor to offset your permanent record. And so the scene has shifted, if you notice this. We're no longer in the depth of the sea, but we're in the courtroom of a holy judge. And what the psalmist recognizes is that if we were charged on all counts, we'd be done for. All bets are off. But, verse 4, but with you there is what? Forgiveness. With you there is forgiveness. You see, because sin is ultimately rebellion against God, it's only God that can release us from the guilt and shame of it. And because sin is ultimately breaking covenant or breaking relationship with God, it is only God who can truly forgive us. And the good news is that this is entirely within God's character, God's nature, to forgive. We come expecting the worst from God, and God shocks us with his best. We come expecting to be whooped down and cast out, and yet God, drawn in by our need, embraces us with mercy. He shocks us and surprises us with grace. Corey Ten Boone, I, lo I love the way she describes this, this process. She says, when we confess our sins, which is key here, when we are honest with God about our sin, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And then God places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. No fishing allowed. Through confession, catch this, the place of our drowning is transformed into the grave of our sin. And when we are raised up out of the grave, we part ways with the guilt and shame of our sin. We part ways with the punishment of our sin. And what the psalmist knew generally about God, we today know fully that God has extended forgiveness to us completely through his son, Jesus Christ. The psalmist expresses that he's waiting for the day when God will appear and take away all of our sins, not just cover our sins, but take them all away. He says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. 
I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. The children of Israel waiting and waiting in generation after generation after generation. And yet Jesus is the answer to this cry. Jesus is God's yes and amen. Jesus is God's fulfillment of everything that they longed for and more. And yet the way that he came was totally unexpected. I love this because that they're peering off into the horizon. They're waiting for God to come in triumph and glory. And yet, how did Jesus come? Came in humility. He appeared where no one would have expected it. In fact, he stepped down lower than anyone could have ever imagined, all the way down into the depths of our sin, our shame, even our death. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sin and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Listen to these words. By canceling the record, the permanent record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You had a permanent record, but Jesus nailed it to the cross. And this is how we stand forgiven before God. Trusting that the one Jesus took our permanent record, he nailed it to the cross, but he not just only brought us back to a place of moral neutrality where God's like, eh, okay, you get in. But in exchange, he gave to us his perfect record of holiness so that whenever God looks upon us, which is always the apple of his eye, all he sees is not your failure, not your sin, not your regret, but the righteousness of Jesus. And this is how we stand, justified by faith. By faith. I want you to catch something here. The word mark in verse 3, Lord, if you were to mark iniquity, and the word watch in verse 5, like the watchman watching for the morning, in the Hebrew, this word is the same word. Mark, And watch. And this is intentional, I believe, because what the psalmist, I believe, is showing us is that God doesn't watch or or fixate on our sin. If he did, we'd be doomed. And what we know as believers is that Jesus instead chooses to fixate on his son's record. And the application is this. You have to get this. The application is, is this. Stop fixating on what God refuses to fixate upon. Stop staring where God refuses to stare, whether that's your own sin or look around, whether that's the sin of the fellow brothers and sisters around you. Instead, fixate on the one who brought you up from the pit. Robert Murray McShane said these beautiful words, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Yes, we have to bravely face the depths of our humanity, but it has to result in raising our eyes in faith to see the beauty of our redemption. This is not eternal navel gazing. This is confession that draws us upward towards him. Face your humanity, but fixate on your Savior. Amen? Let's look finally at trembling and awe. Trembling and awe. I think 
I think people come to God for a number of reasons. And there are probably numerous reasons why you, we, are gathered here to God. Often to feel a sense of relief from guilt, to feel relief from punishment. People come to God to fix their marriage. Some people come to God to fix their family. Some people come to God to change their outlook on life. Some people come to God to help their finances. But in the long run, this simply makes God a means to your own end. And you see, the, the psalmist leads us further in. We have to see the traje- trajectory of this psalm. He's leading us further in past a sense of emotional relief that we get through mercy, further in past the feeling of being forgiven, further in even from spiritual healing. The psalmist leads us to God himself. And it's the Lord himself that the psalmist longs for most. It's the Lord himself that keeps him up at night watching and waiting. It's the Lord himself who has the psalmist calling out and singing out and calling others to hope in God. It's the Lord himself that gives this individual and this community and us hope for the future. Notice the goal of mercy. What is the goal of mercy? What is the goal of forgiveness? Well, the psalmist says, or at least what we can deduce here, is that the goal of mercy isn't ultimately forgiveness. The goal of mercy is fear. And don't take my word for it. Look at me in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness. Why? That you may be feared. Now we know that for the believer that this is not fear of punishment. First John tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. And yet what the psalmist says is not being just now washed away and disregarded, that there is still a fear that remains for the believer. And what we know from the account of Scripture is that this is a holy fear. We're not now afraid that God is going to punish us, but we remain in fear, and it's a fear that trembles in the presence of a holy God. We tremble in the presence of such beauty and might. In the book of Habakkuk, the prophet looks at the downward spiral of his nation and the brokenness of the religious community that he was a part of. And he calls upon God for answers. He says, I'm going to give God my complaint, and I'm going to stand here until he gives me some answers. What does he come to God for? Answers. That is often what we seek the Lord for. Give me answers. Why, God? Why did you allow this? Why is this happening in my life? Why? But God gives him something better. Himself. God appears and he speaks to him and Habakkuk's response is amazing. He says, I tremble inside when I heard this. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me and I shook in terror. How do you know when you have truly experienced the God of mercy and forgiveness? The answer is simple. You tremble. And if you have yet to tremble, then you have great reason to believe you have actually not come in contact with this God at all. 
John Calvin said, the uniform report of sacred scripture is that every human being who has ever exposed to the holiness of God trembles in his presence. An experience of God has never left a human soul indifferent. It either causes people to fall down on their face and worship him, or it makes people so angry that they reject him and desire to kill him, but he has never, ever, ever left someone experiencing a mild response. If your response is indifferent and apathetic and mild, you haven't experienced God. I'm reminded of a story from my childhood. In fact, when I was studying for this passage, I looked over and I, see it, I, I saw this book on my bookshelf. And it was The Wind in the Willows. And there's a certain portion of the story where the mole and the rat, they go in search of the otter's missing son. And the journey brings them to this island where they're granted a vision of this divine being that they never really even uh, planned on, on, on coming across and meeting. And from the moment that they arrive on this island, they sense that there's something different. In fact, the rat calls it a holy place. He senses something different about this place. And it says these words, Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him. An awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that stuck and held him. And without seeing, he knew that it could only mean that some distinguished presence was very, very near. And with difficulty, he turned to look to his friend and saw him at his side. And he too was stricken and trembling with violently. And the mole raised his humble head and he noticed that all of a sudden nature, which previously had been bustling and lively and loud, was still. And the narrator describes this scene as nature holding her breath for a moment. And he looks up and he beholds the one that is called the friend and the helper. And he says these words, rat. He found the breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with inexpressible love. Afraid of him? Never. Never. And yet, and yet, Omo, I am afraid. And then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. When you, by God's grace, learn to move past God's benefits, and by God's grace, move past God's blessings, past the things that you get from him, in order to simply get him, the God that you can't control, the God that you can't manipulate, the God that you can't fit in your pocket, the God you can't fit in your political party, the God that you can't wrap your mind around, then you too, I promise, will be overwhelmed by awe and wonder. So let me conclude with a few questions to consider this morning. Are you too in the depths like the psalmist? Do you feel like you're sinking? Do you feel like you're your legs have been pulled out from underneath you and you are now in that downward spiral, that undertow of sin that you can't get out of. 
The psalmist makes it clear. Cry out for mercy, and God will hear your voice. Are you devastated by regret? Are you totally fixated on all the ways that you and others have failed? I want you today to stand in the complete forgiveness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And lastly, I think that this may apply to so many of us today. Do you feel stagnant in your faith? Do you feel stuck? Do you feel indifferent? I'm just going through the motions. I don't even know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm continuing to believe. It's just what we've always done. But I'm not feeling it. I'm not engaged. I feel indifferent. Get desperate for God's presence. Get desperate for God's presence, and I promise you, you will never, ever, ever have to worry about apathy once you are there. Because indifference and apathy and mild responses wither away when we are in the presence of an all-consuming, holy God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time.